It's no surprise that updating the electricity grid today will make for a better tomorrow. Increased self-sufficiency is just one of the benefits. The Great Grid upgrade will also boost the economy and create new green jobs. And best of all, you can continue doing the things you love, like watching the latest epic nature documentary or listening to this podcast while caring for the planet too. Find out more at nationalgrid.com. This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispie, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. There's no better feeling than a personal win, and the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Hello, and welcome to the podcast, the nature and countryside podcast from BBC Countryfile magazine. My name is Fergus Collins, and I'm the host of this podcast. And a very warm welcome to part two of our special conversation with Tony Juniper, the chair of Natural England. Countryman Rob York met with Tony at Wiccan Fen Nature Reserve in Cambridgeshire. And in part one, they tackled a huge range of issues that Natural England deals with in its remit to support and enhance England's wildlife and environment, including the eternal battle between food production and wildlife conservation. In this episode, there are equally hot topics, from badger culling and climate change, to rewilding, and in particular, beaver reintroductions. So sit back and have a listen to an inspiring discussion about some of the big topics facing the countryside we all love. If you'd like to talk to me and the team about the issues raised by Tony and Rob, please email me. My email address is editor at countryfile.com. But for now, we return to the wilds of Wiccan Fen. So we've now got a small aeroplane coming the opposite way from the Hercules. A couple of willow trees. Quite nice to just keep out of that hot sun. It's, it, it is remarkably hot. And talking of hot, we're just going to touch on maybe badgers in that quite a few conservationists are concerned about badgers who are of no of no conservation con- uh, concern when it comes to their population, having an impact on maybe curlew or maybe yeah. hedgehogs. Now, habitat's important. Is there an ability to maybe manage badgers who have their own parliamentary act? Is it time to revise that to enable a little more management to allow other species or enable other species not to become extinct due to being predated by badgers? Well, the management intervention on badgers at the moment is not geared to the protection of other species, including, you know, ground-nesting birds or hedgehogs, Uh, but it is geared to a government priority to eradicate bovine tuberculosis. And so this is a decision uh, taken by government, not by Natural England, based upon the advice of another agency, namely uh, the Animal and Plant Health Agency, Uh, with input from the chief veterinary officer, uh, who have determined that bovine TB is in part down to a reservoir that exists in badgers. That's a a controversial subject that people continue to debate, but that's the scientific view coming from those specialist uh, sources. And then once government has decided that there will be a badger cull, and this is a government decision, then uh, there needs to be a licence issued for those culls by Natural England because those animals are protected, like otherwise a seagull would be protected on an airfield. You're not allowed to kill them without the licence. And so that's where we come in. And so we're not the plant health agency. 
and we don't take uh, a view strongly one way or the other on the science, but what we do do is seek to licence the uh, badger control in a way which will reflect the government policy, and uh, that requires us then to look at numbers to be killed in particular areas and also then the uh, animal welfare standards that are applied uh, during the course of the cull. And so that's, um, again, one of those areas where I don't think anybody relishes the uh, control of these animals, but it's a policy based upon governments having, uh, government having advice from its advisers to the effect that this is what's needed. Right, OK, OK. So, yes, so you're talking about kind of two aspects there, the, the control of badgers uh, to reduce BTB, bovine tuberculosis, yeah. within livestock. But then there's the other element, which is, argue, you know, some people might argue that naturally it could be commissioning good, what I mean good, fresh research into the impact of badgers on other wildlife. So that's nothing to do with the livestock yeah. or the BTB. Um, you know, they could be commissioning, potentially, research from independent organisations to explore some of these areas before it's too late. We could invest in, in such a research project, but you'll appreciate that there are hundreds of questions like that. And of course, they change over time. And so having answered the question in one decade, mm. populations alter, the ecology of a system may change, at which point you're then brought back to revisiting it. So the research agenda which underpins uh, Natural England's work across all of our functions is a good evidence base. We're constantly refreshing, we're constantly updating, uh, but there's a limit to how much we can accommodate at any one time. But I think uh, there is, you know, a, a body of anecdotal evidence, at least, to suggest that, you know, badgers do have impacts on some other wildlife, and, uh, you know, ground-nesting birds and hedgehogs are too. Yeah, yeah. On to beavers. Um, that's obviously a very positive message that Natural England enjoy putting out. Some landowners have um, valid concerns. Some of them are maybe not so valid concerns. <laughs> I think this is, about, this is about maybe collaboration. Is DEFRA running this or is Natural England running this particular reintroduction programme? Well, as is, as is so often the case, uh, government decides the policy uh, and Natural England provides advice to help support the decision-making of, of ministers. And that's how it's going with beavers. We were um, very engaged in processing the findings of the River Otter trial, putting more information from other sources behind that to be able to build a picture of the upsides and downsides of, of beaver reintroduction, the risks and opportunities. And then we fed that to government, who in turn created the basis of the consultation, which is now out uh, for people to respond to, to give their views as to the wisdom or otherwise of, of bringing beavers back more widely across England. Sure. Um, and the results of that we will have in due course. OK, OK. That, well, that's we've now just come up a steep bank and... Rather, this is very interesting right here. Rather perfect. What have we got? So what, what you can see here? here is the original fen surface to our left. And then you can see this ditch which is holding that water. And then you see this drop off down there. And so what this is, is peat shrinkage in practice. So this land is three to four metres below this land. And effectively what's happened is that that peat has wasted away on the lower side with much of it now in the atmosphere. Um, it's causing global warming, which is why there is now such a big emphasis on peatlands as one of the steps we need to make mm. towards our net zero ambition. And you can see it right there. Mm. Because when you remove the water, as was done here centuries ago to open up the land for agriculture, you expose those carbon-rich materials in the peat to the atmosphere and they literally evaporate. It's uniting with oxygen to form carbon dioxide. Mm. And it's, it's blasted up into the air and contributing to this ever higher concentration of CO2. So this is not only a nature site in some ways, it's also a very good example of what, what we might want to be doing at the same time in order to promote our net zero ambitions. Mm. Right, here we are. And uh, Tony was just going to give us a little more history on the area. Well, th this bit of the fen, the higher bit, where you've got the original surface of the fen habitat, uh, is where 
Charles Rothschild, uh, the banker back in 1899, bought the original little plot for the National Trust. It was one of the national, well, it was the National Trust's first nature reserve. And of course, he then went on to establish the National Network of Wildlife Trusts via the Society for the Promotion of Nature Reserves. So there's a lot of history here. And actually, the history goes back much further than that, because these peatland deposits here, of course, are rich in archaeology. And every now and again, some amazing Bronze Age brooch gets pulled out of the peat around here. And we find these kinds of remains that reveal, you know, how this landscape has been used by people for many thousands of years. And actually, standing just here right now, looking at that beautiful view across that reed bed, just understanding this incredible biodiversity that's in here, the fact that it's holding all of this carbon and purifying the water, and that it's got all of that history. This is the kind of sweet spot, I think, that we need to be aiming for in conservation. Beauty, biodiversity, ecosystem services, natural capital, and historic heritage altogether being maximised in one place. And I think when we get that right, it can be really a very, very good thing, as you yeah. can see here. Yeah, yeah, and, and indeed. And, of course, kind of landowners, I, I assume by the name Rothschild, had quite a lot of land at one stage. Um, the fact that the, the land ownership and the modern requirements we want from it hark back to what you said earlier, Tony, about keeping people in the room, keeping the collaboration of arguably the minority who are the rural sector and the yes. majority who are the urban taxpayers, yes. all making that journey together. Yes. I think we've covered a lot of those aspects. Yes. We've done beavers. I was going to. I don't think we need to talk more about beavers because you've just told us the consultation well, is. We can say is, something about the concerns, shall we? I mean, you, you, yes, because I know the consultation's there, but there's been quite a lot said, whether it's from anglers or whether it's from farmers or other conservationists who are maybe trying to plant trees next to watercourses, yes. which are then obviously gnawed down. How do we? How does Natural England or we as society start to address those? The approach that we're taking with beaver as a country uh, is one that we'll take more widely with bringing back previously native species that, that have gone. And so it's really about maximising the benefits and trying to minimise and manage any risks and downsides. And so the proposal with beaver is first of all to be licensing uh, the reintroductions that may occur in places where they are going to cause uh, most benefit and least risk, and then also to be having a regime to manage them should anything become problematic down the track. And this is where the work at the River Otter has been very helpful, uh, the work of the Devon Wildlife Trust and Exeter University and others in being able to demonstrate how it is possible to find that, 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 that convergence spot between the, the maximising of the good and avoiding the bad. And mm. hopefully the consultation will come through with people comfortable with that approach. Sure. And it wasn't, it wasn't just the academics and the wildlife trust involved down at the River Otter. There was, the, I mean, there were farmers and obviously yes, landowners. Yes, and Devon estate. Involved. Right, right, exactly. So, it was, so there was the whole let's say the whole shebang yes i'm just going to go off a slight tangent do you think social media <laughs> slows down the ability to communicate some of these nuanced things that no. possibly we're talking about now well the social media i mean it genuinely is a double-edged sword and uh you know on the one side it's a great way of sharing ideas and spreading information and being able to circulate references to scientific documents that have just come out and being able to get everybody to see the front line of where our knowledge is. And then on the other side, it's a good place to have really vicious arguments between diametrically opposed groupings that tends to create more heat than it sheds light very often. And then also it's, of course, a place to spread misinformation, as we're finding at the moment with uh, various aspects of the COVID-19 pandemic and the vaccination, for example. So, you know, some of it's helpful, some of it really isn't helpful. And I guess what we need for the future is to have people equipped with the ability to be able to filter out the things that are true from those that are untrue and to be able to use social media to the maximum benefit for them and uh, sometimes i think you know people get rather trapped by it and caught in it in a way which doesn't help so maybe social science is equal if not more important than ecological science oh yes if ecological science is going to gain any yeah. kind of traction well i'm i'm constantly brought back to 
one of the founding ideas of Fauna and Flora International. I was on the board there, a very famous, uh, very old conservation group, and they have the maxim that conservation is a social project informed by ecological science. And I think that's very, very true, because if you can't line up the social engagement and the willingness to go on the journey, it doesn't matter how much science you've got. Do you know where I think I've heard that before? Philip Merricks. Philip Merricks. Well, Philip is, is a great example of someone who's gone on the journey. And actually, Philip's a really good example of a farmer. Do I just say, or do you want to say who he is, just for the, um, just for the listeners? Just, just yeah. I mean, this is not... This is not the Philip Merrick show, but let's just go. Yeah. Well, example. it's interesting you, you should me- mention Philip Merricks, who's been managing a national nature reserve on the Isle of Sheppey now for more than 30 years and was very much uh, in the world of intensive agriculture. He was growing a lot of uh, arable crops on, on the land there. But in the late 1980s, decided that he'd like to embark on a different uh, trajectory and had support from back then, the Nature Conservancy Council, to convert his land into a national nature reserve, which is now one of the uh, shining examples of what you can do for wader productivity in England. And, you know, Philip's very interesting because um, he told me once that when he was a farmer, he was all about productivity. And now he's in conservation, he's all about productivity. And so what he's trying to do is to maximise the wildlife through having this designation of NNR, but doing it with the same kind of systematic Mm. rigour and determination Mm. and planning that he would have once applied to arable crops. Mm. And Philip, I think, really does show us... um, you know, the, 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 the mindset uh, and how, you know, it's not necessarily you have to have a farming mindset or a conservation mindset. The two actually can be the same thing, which is what he's shown us. Right, right. I have actually been there. And, and uh, I mean, the lat wing, as you said, the lat wing productivity is amazing. Yes, exactly. And uh, uh, very impressive results he's got too. Yeah. What about trees let's let let's go away from the wide open spaces where lapwings love and curlews love to planting trees are some people talking about trees as though it's just a silver bullet panacea to climate change or whatever In, in this complex world of of climate and nature emergencies I think it's quite often tempting to look for something which can make a simple phrase and which can present a simple and appealing idea to people. And that's right, and we need as many of those as we can muster. And one of them, of course, is the uh, idea of expanding uh, tree cover, or actually more, more often encapsulated in the idea of tree planting. Now, this actually could be really useful, depending on where you do it and how you do it, the right trees in the right place but also doing this in a way which is going to maximise the non-carbon benefits, which I think is one of the big tasks at the moment, because the world has woken up to the linkage between CO2 in the atmosphere and tree growth being one way in which we can mitigate that a little bit. But actually, at the same time, we also have to be improving habitats for biodiversity, like these trees right here by Wiccan Lode. We need to be creating beautiful landscapes. You can see an element of that here. We need to be cleaning up water courses, reducing flood risk reduction, Mm. producing some wood alongside food. We need to produce wood from our domestic sources too. And in urban areas, we can use trees to improve air quality. Now, if we go down only the carbon route, then potentially we start to lose sight of those wider benefits. So again, Mm. it's about having an integrated approach uh, in my mind Mm. and being Mm. able to find the ways in which we can target the incentives for new trees and to do that in a way which is going to be maximising these different elements. And this is where then I think we need to change the phrase tree planting into a phrase uh, more like woodland establishment because not only is this about digging holes and putting plastic tubes in with a sapling natural regeneration is a hugely important part of all of this because you get habitats like that scrub we saw a few moments ago which are so much better uh, for insects and birds uh, than some even age plantations which don't have that thorn phase with all of those flowers and berries which are so important for mm. so many different species of wildlife. So it's complicated uh, once mm. you get beyond the headline but mm. the headline isn't wrong so long as we can do the policy right. Right, right. Now we are standing just to uh, we've walked uh, away from more of the open landscape ironically and maybe that's what triggered us to talk about trees. There's some very mature hawthorn and willow trees uh, covered in 
looks like is it ivy? No, it's not ivy. Yes, very bit of ivy, and on the other side, more willow trees and hawthorn trees, and some ash in the background. There's a wild service tree there we just passed. That one behind us. And there's a big old birch tree in the distance. So it's suddenly become much more wooded. Um, I mean, the UK was going to sell its forests off a long time ago. People campaigned not to do that. However, people don't really go into deep, dark woodlands. How do we, how do we connect people with enjoying woodlands rather than maybe just talking about woodlands? Well, this is a, another... So connecting, sorry. So yes, that's, I suppose yeah. that's about connecting, um, connecting people to... Yeah. So of, 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 the, of the two big priorities which are emerging at Natural England, alongside this idea of generating momentum and action for a national nature recovery network, the other thing that goes hand in hand with that is connecting people with nature in much more meaningful ways because we now have this vast body of data telling us that of all these things that nature can do for society, catching carbon, cleaning up the rivers, reducing flood risk, in much of the country, by far the most valuable benefit is being able to provide for public health and well-being, psychological well-being, physical health, because of being able to enjoy places like this one. So the question then becomes, how can we align that nature recovery network idea with greater public access and enjoyment at the same time as not undermining the wildlife value with dogs running across fields where birds are nesting on the ground and so on. Mm. So that's, you know, again, you kind of presented with quite a complex conundrum in terms of how you do that. But I think the breakthrough for us at Natural England at the moment is having clarity about that synergy between nature recovery and benefits for people in that very tangible way. Mm. We touched also on recycling. I've just said recycling, not rewilding, because I was distracted. <laughs> I was distracted. Fish. There was a fish <laughs> rising, and so that completely... Yeah, exactly. I, there's some nice rud in here, I can tell you. There's some very decent rud, especially where this joins Burwell Load down there. There's like two, three-pound fish in there. You see, you see, Tony, I was hoping to recycle that rud. I know you can't yeah. eat them, but in Eastern Europe, you do no, eat you them. Just, you could let it go again. Uh, yeah, exactly, you could let it go again. And maybe that brings us on to letting it go. We've just been talking about, or I've been mentioning best-kept villages uh, from the, 90, you know, the 1970s, 1980s, that metal sign outside the village saying, neat, tidy, beautifully kept. Uh, and maybe we could let go. There's room to just not rough up the neat edges, but just rewild. Could there have been a better word to start this discussion rather than rewilding? Well, rewilding certainly has provoked a, a debate, and for that it, it's been a good thing. But for my estimation, the better phrase that we can all be using is nature recovery. And this goes to what is, I think, a change in the whole conversation at the moment, going beyond hanging on to what's left and trying to bring back some of what's gone at scale. Now, this is uh, in part about restoring ecological processes in ways with minimal intervention, and there are some good examples of that across the country now, which you could call rewilding. But there are other layers to it. It's a spectrum, in, in my view. And so nature recovery, unlike rewilding, also includes the restoration of features in agricultural landscape to be able to bring back the birds and flowers that we used to find in the wider countryside. And also it's about reconnecting places like this with other places nearby that are not necessarily wild. They're quite well quite heavily managed in some ways uh, and so excluding this kind of nature reserve uh, because it's not a rewilding example I think would be obviously a mistake and so the rewilding piece it's been essential in provoking a new conversation but it's only one aspect of a much broader discussion about nature recovery I think. Right right so you so you mentioned obviously um, kind of farmers and landowners if they're um kind of planting up their headlands on the edges of their field with some with some maybe some wild bird seed and they might also you know be doing some rough shooting doing some hunting harvesting uh harvesting uh produce from those rewilded areas or those kind of wilder areas there's a lot of room there's a lot more stuff in common between let's say hunting uh and rewilding they've got common goals they may have different values but they've got common goals Indeed, and I, I do think the um, synergies 
that exist between those engaged in field sports and those looking to improve the outcomes for conservation, they have much more in common than is often uh, apparent from some of the debates that go on in public. And the way these things get polarised, get polarised, it tends to drive people apart rather than to see where the overlaps lie. And, you know, like everything else, uh, the, the shooting and hunting side, there's a spectrum there. Some of it is not necessarily very good for our native uh, wildlife. For example, the mass release of, of uh, captive reared pheasants, many of them in one place, may have ecological impacts. But then again, at the other end of the spectrum, managing land in order to promote the wild populations of things like grey partridge can have enormous benefits for conservation. And so finding where we can uh, get common cause to move that spectrum towards the good end through partnerships for me I think is an opportunity. Great, great. Well we're almost coming towards the end of uh, the walk. We're just walking down uh, where we started. I didn't see that on the way here. What have we got? We've got a windmill. It looks that's like a, that's, a, that's a pump, a wind-powered pump that's taking water from over here and moving it across uh, to the other side to enable the water in the existing fen, uh, the, the original ex fen that still exists there, to be topped up. And uh, I think they're getting water from this side as well uh, because um, it's coming off of that load which is coming out of the chalk up towards Newmarket. And so it's bringing in relatively pure water which can go onto the top of the fen there. Yeah. Um, but this is all about water, this landscape, mm. and uh, being able to manage the hydrology to keep the peat wet for all of those reasons that are now mm. so prominent. Yeah, yeah, and, and, and I suppose there's an integration of human intervention and natural, um, nature-based solutions, which may still involve chainsaws to cut trees down in order to yes. slow down watercourses, yes. the use of pesticides in some farming practices, Okay, we could have started this because we talk about kind of food, uh, food production, minimal cultivation, ploughing on certain soils, releases carbon, damages earthworms. There are quite a few conversations that Natural England potentially could get more involved with, but you're saying it's down to government to have some of these, some of these discussions, maybe about pesticides and uh, how to frame natural-based solutions? Yes, it's really uh, a question for government to decide, but also one for Natural England to advise. And right. we do feed into government policy across a wide range of issues. And uh, that's very much one of the ways in which we can help to create a positive difference. And that advisory work is running alongside the work we do uh, for the delivery of government policy. So, for example, on agri-environment schemes and on wildlife licensing, designation of national nature reserves like this one and sites of special scientific interest and national parks and AOMBs, we do all of that designation work. So we've got a delivery and regulatory role alongside that advisory role and all of it is underpinned by a pretty substantial evidence gathering effort in right. partnership with various universities and NGOs like the British Trust for Ornithology and, and others. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's a multi-layered quite complicated mm. operation that's run out of Natural England but for me the core of it today is about building a nature recovery network using mm. the existing protected area network going in to work in partnership with farmers and landowners, using all of our different powers and duties to be able to advance that cause. Mm. And I think if we can build the partnerships to get behind that, a huge difference can be made in a quick time. Great. No, I think, well, I think that's an that's interesting place to drink, uh, almost bring it to a conclusion. We did have two people going past on a bicycle, ringing their bell, which is almost like ding, ding, mm -hmm. time out. I've taken mm -hmm. a lot of your time, Tony, so thank you very much for that. Pleasure. I have... However, I'm afraid, got two questions which I think I did pitch to you beforehand. Yes. Uh, the first one is, in 25 years' time, if you were flying over the UK, or you were flying a drone over the UK, or over England, I should say, um, what would you expect to see? Or what would you hope to see? What I would hope to see is, is, is the landscape coming back to life. So more semi-natural areas connecting across the landscape, creating highways and, and, and byways for wildlife to be using. Our fresh water would be far cleaner, not least as a result of the restoration uh, of some of the land for conservation purposes. 
we would see sustainable agriculture in the form of mixed farming spread across the country rather than having half of it arable and half of it in pasture. Uh, and we would see many, many more people in that countryside, actually. So this is not about excluding people. Far from it. It's the opposite. It's about how can we create environments that's going to be of benefit to the whole population. And I think if we can get that right... That's when hopefully we start to uh, resolve some of these tensions that have been there between rural and urban for so many decades. Because in the end, it's everybody's environment. And if we can make it beautiful, productive, sustainable, it's going to be a benefit to everybody. And then I think the taxpayers living in the cities would be very happy to pay in order to achieve those outcomes. OK, that's, that's great. Thank you. I mean, obviously I said in 25 years' time, that means that the politicians that come and go every five years will have changed and you'll still be in your post, which is quite <laughs> magnificent. Uh, OK, and my other question, Tony, is this. You are the head chef at COP26. What menu would you serve to the global leaders and why? So food sits at the heart of everything we've discussed today, the landscape, climate change, resilience, food security. And so coming up with a menu that helps the leaders to understand the challenge at hand, I think, would be a very good thing to do. We're putting some of those credentials on the menu. So what can we do in terms of... Uh, bringing meaning to, to, to what's eaten. And I think, you know, low carbon, obviously, for COP26 is going to be a very important part of the equation. So food that's been produced near to the venue would be good. And uh, that would include, I would have thought, some very fine, sustainably produced Scottish meat uh, reared on pasture and preferably coming from a project where we have the animals as part of a conservation grazing regime, bringing back the biodiversity as well as holding carbon in the landscape. And also I think we should be uh, attempting to not only bring environmental credentials to the menu, but also historic and cultural ones, because one of the things that I think connects people to the land is a sense of history and a sense of cultural belonging. And actually I remember years ago um, a slogan that the Countryside Agency were using, which um, was about eating the view and connecting what we eat with the way places look and trying to keep them beautiful and sustainable economically as well as environmentally through having a preference for those kinds of foodstuffs. And I think in this country, we could have a very fine menu uh, for the entire world based upon uh, sustainability, history and culture. And I think I'd be looking for that. And you can imagine many dishes uh, that would fit the bill um, from uh, Scottish raspberries for the dessert through to haggis maybe as a starter and then a nice um, piece of beef maybe for the main course. All, all washed down with whiskey or well, ale, I think the ultimate sustainable wine. the ultimate sustainable beverage for Scotland has got to be whiskey. I don't know how many centuries it's being produced, but it's still being produced, and maybe finishing off with a glass of that would be a good way to end. Right. Well, if I had a bottle on me, that would be a fine way to end the day. Having said that, obviously I wouldn't drive anywhere afterwards. <laughs> Edit that one out. <laughs> Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispie, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. And that's where we left Tony and Rob at Wiccan Fen. 
And a huge thank you to Tony for giving us his time and all his expertise and for giving us some insight into the work of Natural England and the big challenges facing that organisation in modern times with all the turmoil and change that is constantly going on in the countryside. And also a huge thank you to Rob York for the brilliant questions and for giving us a picture of the landscape as they walked through it. So that was lovely. I'm glad to say I'm back in the podcast studio. My name is Fergus Collins. I'm the host of the podcast and I'm with my regular podcast friends, Jack Bateman and Hannah Tribe. Hello. Hello. And they both help produce and create and make this podcast magic. So lovely to see you both. Uh, Lots of issues raised with Tony and Rob there. And uh, we don't, don't want to go through all the ones that they talked about, but maybe it's sort of, you know, when listening to that, I was wondering if there's any sort of burning issues that you guys had. And I talk about burning issues, issues facing the countryside, things that really get your goat. Well, I think that's really important for me is access to the countryside in the first place. Um, making sure that there are paths and that they're clear and they're open and they're maintained. All that sort of stuff that means that people can really go out and enjoy themselves. So is that a problem that you've come across where you see Yeah, particularly during lockdown. um, I think there were more people out and about and using the footpaths. And I guess that kind of feeling that maybe these people might be bringing something that might affect people working in the landscape. So more landowners were blocking off paths and trying to discourage people from using them. Most of it has been reported and the Gower Society and the National Trust have done a really good job of making sure they have... Because they have... you're down in Gower. Yes. Oh, I mean, that's, I know you're, 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 you're between Gower and Bristol, yes. but uh, your, Gower is your, your, your heart. My is. homeland, yeah. yes. Um, and yeah, so we are quite lucky in that there are a lot of organisations who have a vested interest in making sure that these places are kept open and um, accessible to people. So this stuff gets looked at and monitored. But I guess there are places in the country where there aren't as many people interested in making sure that these footpaths are in use. And so they become, they come out of use. And so they're not there forever. And when people look at maps or they expect there to be something there, if it hasn't been used for a few years, then they might be overgrown or they might have been blocked by other means. That's, oh gosh, uh, I definitely have encountered that a lot. Generally away from the sort of hot spots and honey pots where just so many people go that that's the footpaths are always open and maintain, styles are maintained and things like that. I often find the worst places are the ordinary little paths through fields or along hedgerows on normal farmland mostly where perhaps people don't go that often. It's not, it's just a route, perhaps an old route between villages that isn't perhaps used that much these days, the odd dog walker and the odd pioneering walker out there. But it's, you notice that sometimes a bit of farm machinery or a fence has been put in the way mm. or um, the, site, the footpath signs have been removed, Yeah, which I really hate. And I've come a cropper several times in Monmouthshire walking just innocently, completely innocently, walking through fields and being told, where are you going? Can I help you? You're trespassing. And it's because someone locally has removed the footpaths and it's clearly on the OS map. And I can track exactly where I am using the OS app, which has a sort of GPS look. So I know where the footpath is within, you know, 20, 30 yards. But, you know, it's gone and you have to find your way I really I think it's 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 a low down dirty trick to remove footpaths because these are the meaningful I mean I think if anyone wants to learn about the meaning of footpaths have you read Rod McFarlane's The Old Ways yes yeah it's a classic it's a really great book about the importance of these connecting paths that our ancestors walked to get between jobs and home and between you know lovers in villages walking to go and see each other would follow these paths paths of desire but these are important and and rob mcfarland's book is fantastic at sort of showing him why we need this connectivity to the landscape and it's deeply unfair of you know there are good reasons sometimes for blocking off footpaths and i I, and i do understand that there was some really bad behavior from people um during lockdown 
who perhaps weren't used to going to the countryside. But also that's kind of reason to keep these things open and keep them accessible because if you don't have if you don't have access to the countryside, you don't think of it as a thing to be valued and treasured and looked after. It's just like any old space. And so it's sort of a vicious circle. If you can't get out there, then you don't learn about it and you don't love it and you don't respect it. Yeah, I think that's that's something that I, that's a really good point because if you're I, I, yeah, if you're not experiencing the countryside, how you uh, it takes a while to yeah. build up that relationship. I definitely um, take it for granted. Mm. I sort of think that everyone feels this way, but not everyone has had the privileges that I've had. Yeah, and and you wouldn't ever throw litter. No. Uh, in fact, you'd probably clear it up, <laughs> which is great. I don't thing. turn it into art like you. <laughs> yeah, well, you know. Man's got to have a hobby, so yeah, it's that's a really good point. I think that's I I would I would definitely support that. There is something called well, twenty twenty six is a bit of a cut off point for rights of way and existing footpaths and these sort of unofficial footpaths that people use uh, because there is legislation coming in that I think if they're not recorded, um, these will be taken off the map yeah. and maybe landowners will be given permission to block off certain routes. Now, I'm not talking about the rights of way that you already see on the OS map, although some of those will be uh, potentially under threat. So I think it's the Ramblers who've got a campaign called Don't Lose Your Way. And that's where you can register footpaths. And very important to register these footpaths and keep them open because without access to the country, as you say, it's like an absolute breath of life to, to all of us who love it. Jack, how about you? You uh... you mentioned about like litter and stuff, and I know there's quite a lot of talk about pollution and rivers being polluted and littering in the countryside. Um, but I, I, I have a feeling that there's other forms of pollution that don't really get a, an, an eye in with all this other sort of pollution that gets a lot of attention. So like stuff with like light pollution, but even I know we've been affected by it. Noise is a type of pollution. And so... The amount of times we've tried to record someone, you've just got that hum of traffic. And I feel that there's that weird oh, disconnect. You're so right. If people go, oh, yeah. oh, you're out in the countryside, the air's cleaner, it's not as polluted, it's all this lovely place. But noise is still a form of pollution, which doesn't seem to get the same recognition, even though it is still a form of pollution. There speaks an audio man, but I totally, <laughs> totally understand. I mean, you must have found, found this because you... Uh, yeah, we, moving we, back and forth between Gower and Bristol, I've definitely found a massive difference. Well, it, well Bristol, noisy. Yeah. Because I was going to say, controversially, that sometimes it's the countryside where you're expecting it to be quiet and peaceful and we're out recording those your sound escapes mm-hmm. on Friday and then somebody starts up a chainsaw or or there was that distant road because the wind's in the wrong direction or someone's got a leaf blower and there may be three valleys away but it's that sort of interfering human buzz of I think maybe when you're not recording you can sort of block it out but it's when you think you've got a beautiful blackbird singing or a wood warbler and then some person has been chopping down (laughs) things. I did record a uh, comedy sound escape but that was... uh, Three or four different lawnmowers in different gardens. We never used that one because it oh, was that's awful. A shame. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> I, I do think, though, that it's, it, as much as it's an annoyance for us and we can kind of deal with it, I know, obviously, from wildlife and stuff, it could be a lot more drastic uh, than it is for us. And then it seems like sometimes that's forgotten that it kind of comes up around bonfire night, fireworks night, oh. when everyone goes, obviously, the fireworks going off. You're scaring the local wildlife. It's causing all these problems. But after that, it's kind of drops off that just because there aren't big bangs being let off in the sky, everyone kind of forgets that all the other noise you make is still having an impact on that. And it's not just fireworks that are the problem. There's um, there's some good research into bird song. I think it might be Great Tits or something. Yeah, I was thinking about this as well. I think it might be Great Tits, but it might be Robins, that they... Uh, well, uh, lots of bird species that sing near roads have got louder and their tunes simpler to cope with. So they, they're still able to attract a mate and defend a territory, which is the point of birdsong mostly, um, although it is very entertaining for us too. So thank you, all of you avian songsters. <laughs> but um, yes, they've had to raise their voices 
to get above our trashy noise of all night traffic and the sound of rubber on tarmac. And it's just, I mean, amazing that they've adapted to do that, but it is having an impact. As for, I mean, you raised bonfire night. I, <laughs> I'm going to be unpopular, but I really don't like fireworks. And it's mostly because my dog is just so terrified. It is the most saddest thing to see how absolutely miserable he cannot rest the moment he knows i think he knows november the 5th and it's just utter torture not inconsolable dog and he's such a sweet dog so yeah i'm not i'm not a huge fan i mean they're beautiful but i think once you've seen one controversial controversial that's probably the most controversial thing i'll say today <laughs> but uh, um noise pollution yeah noise pollution light pollution all these things which are sort of insidiously just we and i think we probably all mentally get affected by sense of there being no peace and we you know one of the reasons we go out into the countryside and produce these podcasts and create the sound escapes is to we know people love the peace and the kind of perspective that the countryside gives you and if you can never get away from human activity and that sense of people are busy all the time maybe we do need to reinstall sundays as a day of peace or something um it'd be i guess it'd be interesting to It'd be impossible to work out, but that from all the episodes we've done so far, I mean, this is just an absolute guess, but there's probably more instances of noise pollution than there have been of littering or something like that during the recording of the the episode. But then when you think about it, it's probably more, everyone I think assumes there's more litter than noise and it's, there's this weird sort of unbalance of pollutions. Yeah, visual, visual. I mean, even in Rob, and Tony's recording, when they were chatting about these big serious issues, there's several planes go over, including a Hercules uh, military plane. I mean, the sound of a distant plane can be quite a romantic sound occasionally, just growling across the sky. But fundamentally, I've often been trying to record peregrines up on some crags and suddenly you think, but this lovely bit of, oh, here goes a plane. And it's 10 minutes for it to get across the sky and then for its residual growling to disappear. I'm noticing planes more now than I was before. And I think it's because they went away and now they've come back. But also just that sense, because we have quite a lot of private aircraft, like small light aircraft, Mm. and people going about just having a jolly time in a plane, which seems like a strange thing to be doing in this environment. Yeah, I'm just really much more conscious of it now. I was going to say, what's my bugbear? I think it probably at the moment is river pollution and it will be perhaps the rest of my life. I think it's uh, just a disgraceful state of affairs that we have. uh, And it's been in the news. uh, We have a lot of sewage entering our rivers for lots of different reasons and they're not good reasons. And a lot of agricultural pollution from intense farming, which just by its very nature it's just a lot of byproducts that end up in the rivers i find it really sad when i was reminded the other day i when i was about 14 i used to play in a little local river and it's the only time i've been hospitalized for a very long period because i caught hepatitis from pollution in the river it's a long time ago so we're talking about the the 80s now and so this has been around for a long long time it's nothing particularly new it's just it's got a lot worse. And I think it's absolute tragedy that you know, our rivers weren't in too bad a state. Uh, they were getting better, but we've really, really dropped the ball as a, as a nation. And our you know, pristine rivers like the Wye and the Usk, which are near me in Wales, are beginning to die. Well, the Wye is in a really seriously bad, bad place. Some of the big lakes in the Lake District, so Windermere, I'm, I'm being sent photos of pollution, green algae caused by runoff from the hills around. You know, do we really want to have dead rivers and dead lakes in this country? I think that's a real sign of, of a country that's not functioning properly. So um, that's a real sad bugbear for me. And I, I hope that some of the legislation in the Environment Bill will will start to tackle it. But, um, you know, it really will be proof as in the pudding. Yeah, so, yeah, well, pollution, that's a big... I mean, there are many, many things that keep me awake at night, but 
pollution of our rivers and lakes is is one that um yeah yeah and we we do our best to report on it we've done several podcasts on it and lots of articles in BBC Country File magazine, the print magazine, and online at countryfile.com. So that's our website. So there's lots of ways we can keep looking at this issue and hopefully report on some good news in 2022. We will see. Um, obviously, look, we just that's three issues that affect us and we care about. And obviously, you've heard lots from Rob and Rob York and Tony Juniper. But do let us know of the sort of issues that really get your goat that uh, really annoy you in the countryside and you'd like to see some changes um we will try and investigate them in 2022 because we've got lots of plans for new podcasts and new ideas but we're always open to your thoughts so please email me i'm fergus collins my email address is editor at countryfile.com and don't be shy do send thoughts in because we will use your emails in the podcast if you're happy to let us and in the print magazine, where we sometimes do a letter of the month. So, ah, well, Jack, um, I, 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 you're in charge of the podcast postbag this month. Have you got, is there anything to, to, to declare? Oh, you bet there is. Oh. <laughs> you bet there is. I've been plowing through the uh, postbag and I have found a review. Oh, it feels like a review. And this review is from... Tameng 2. I believe I'm pronouncing that right. And uh, they've given us a four-star review. Okay. And uh, have simply put, very entertaining, provides great listening to wind down on an evening. A+. A+, but not five stars. But that's very kind. Uh, Was it Tameng 2? Tameng 2. Okay, thank you, Tameng 2. That's really kind. And uh, do, do please... Listeners leave uh, ratings and feedback and that sort of thing for us because it always cheers us up. Yeah, get some nice, just a bit of love, a small yeah, bit of love. That's what we need. Love. We know there are thousands and thousands and thousands of listeners out there, so that's a really that's very exciting for us. But um, we do like to hear from you now and again. So, <laughs> um, and in the new year, we'll be starting a Facebook page for the podcast. We think well overdue, but a place where we can chat offline, online, chat with each other, chat chat with other listeners, and kind of come up with some good ideas for future podcasts and just share the love of the countryside pictures all that sort of thing so that's it from us lots of discussion about big issues facing the countryside um we'll be back next week with a complete different podcast back to the histories and mysteries of the countryside with our lovely friend kevin parr who's interviewing and going out for a wander with john wright who is forager mushroom expert is he a fun guy? He's a fun guy. Well, they're two fun guys together. <laughs> oh. uh, there's not mushroom for the jokes. Oh, no. um, let's keep that one out. That's really, uh, so, yeah, that'll be, um, that, it's really entertaining. I've already listened to it. It's it's really, really fun. And they are, they, it's just sort of podcast magic, the two of them out together. So tune in for that. But for now, it's goodbye from me and the podcast team. <laughs>